Well, thank you, Louise, for reading, friends. Keep your Bibles open there, and uh, let me just add my welcome to uh, Julian's. It's great to have you with us this morning, and uh, as we continue this series, Rejoicing This Christmas, uh, I hope that as you reflect on the greatness of God, as we see him reflected in Mary's song, uh, something that makes you rejoice. Let's pray as we look at this passage together. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God of great love and mercy, of great power and might, and a God who comes and meets us. We pray that you'd be with us this morning, that you would help us to hear you speak to us in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most, if not all of us, uh, have never experienced it, and so we don't fully understand. But a lady by the name, name of Kathy Diosi does. Uh, the oppression and slavery of her people by a foreign power. The fear and uncertainty, the helplessness, the aching desire for someone to help them, for a saviour, a redeemer. I used to go to church with Kathy. Uh, some of you may have read her book, Forgiving Hitler. I think it's up there on the screen. It's a story of her life as a Hungarian Jew born in Budapest uh, and living through the years when Hitler was crushing her people, crushing her family. It was another horrific time in the history for the Jews. The oppression and fear and barbaric treatment they endured has left a terrible stain on the pages of human history. And despite the blots upon some individuals in the Russian army, it was a great day when the Russian, their Russian redeemers came and set them free. But that generation who lived through the Nazi oppression of their people has not been the only generation of Jews who have lived with an aching desire for a saviour. Uh, the extent of the comparison I'm not certain about, but the history of the Jews, recorded here in Luke chapter 1, bears remarkable similarities. There was an aching desire in Israel for a saviour. Their country had been overthrown by the power and might of Rome. Uh, they lived under the Roman appointed ruler, King Herod. He wasn't a Roman, he was from Idumea, uh, a country just south of Judea. And he claimed the Jewish religion as his own, but he was fiercely loyal to Rome and his own greatness. He was a wicked man. And this was an unpredictable and volatile and uncertain time in Israel's history uh, that we begin reading from in the book of Luke. Now, understandably, Israel longed to be free from, of this oppression and fear and helplessness. Uh, they longed for someone to help them, to rescue them, to set them free. In fact, there were many brief uprisings, many potential saviours who came along but were quickly crushed. But more significantly, many people's thoughts had turned to the promises of God for them. They were promises that had been made long ago and were regularly restated and reminded to the people of Israel. They were promises of salvation, of being rescued from their enemies, of having their own God-appointed king to rule over them with justice and truth, of living without fear, fear of being oppressed by the wicked, of living in peace. And there were good reasons to trust those promises. Uh, Israel's history was... Uh, littered with occasions that God had stepped in to save his people. Often he did it by raising up one of their own people, a king who would defeat their enemies, who would act on God's behalf as saviours for them. 
And so this kind of long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited Saviour, was right in the front of the minds of those who loved God and trusted his promises. There was an aching desire in Israel. And that was for God's Saviour to come and to redeem them. Now this is the, the setting in which Luke and his orderly account of Jesus' life, Jesus' mission, death and resurrection, it, it's, that's the uh, context in which it's recorded. And it starts with two babies and two predictions. We saw the first of those last week, didn't we? The announcement and arrival of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, in verse 76, chapter 1, John is described as the prophet of the Most High, that is, of God himself. And in verse 16 of chapter 1, he is going to turn the hearts and minds of many of his own people back to God. Many of the Israelites had wandered away from their single-minded devotion to God, and perhaps it had been too long, and they doubted the reality of God's promises. But John would be a great leader, we're told, remember last week, who would lead them back. And so no wonder Jesus himself said of John later on that in the history of humanity there was no one greater than him. However, as we read on, it quickly becomes clear that John is not the greatest one in this extraordinary moment in history. In fact, this is actually about Jesus Christ, not John. John is important only in that he pointed to and prepared people for the arrival of Jesus. See, this is where the, the centre of history is. Jesus is at the heart of Luke's gospel, of what God is doing in the world. And here is the second baby, if you like, and the second prediction. It's the miraculous promise of a saviour. In verse 26 of chapter 1 there, uh, the angel Gabriel, you'll notice, makes his second appearance. He already appeared to Zechariah last week. This time he appears in Nazareth to a peasant girl named Mary. And look at what he tells her in verse 31 of chapter 1. He says to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, the angel Gabriel appears as God's messenger, announcing to Mary that God had chosen her, a virgin, to bear his own son. A son who would rescue Israel, who would rule over God's eternal kingdom. Here is the beginning of the fulfilment of God's promised Messiah, his saviour. The Davidic king who would rule over God's kingdom forever. Now Mary, of course, struggles intensely to believe what she hears. And who wouldn't, of course? It's astounding, it's miraculous. It's one of the reasons that people find Christianity hard to believe. But the angel reminds her that nothing is impossible with God. And that even her relative Elizabeth, who was old and barren, was now pregnant as well with little John the Baptist. It's astounding, isn't it? But it's not impossible for God. He's our creator. He's the one who formed humanity from the dust of the earth. He's the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. And now with the miraculous birth of Jesus, it's the beginning of a new creation. God is not limited by the things that limit us. He is God. He's the one who made us. And Mary understands that. And Luke, you'll notice here, highly esteems Mary. 
He recognises her lowly and humble position in the world, but he draws our attention to her resolute confidence in God and his promises. He records Mary's response to the angel in verse 38. Look at it there. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The salvation of the world required her willing cooperation. It was an extraordinary announcement. And yet Mary believed that with God, all things are possible. If God said it, it will be. And so when she visits Elizabeth, just a few verses on, and finds her pregnant, as the angel said, and then she hears her words of confirmation, her joy overflows in the song uh, at verse 46. It's a song that many generations of Christians have called the Magnificat. Mary knows that God has blessed her. The great favour of God uh, is upon her. And so let's just have a look at this song that Mary sings in response to what God has done for her because it does make very clear why Christianity is a religion of joy. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he's, a look, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And the song that Mary sings here breaks into two main sections. The first section, uh, verses 46 through to 50, a personal. Mary's personal joy at what God has done for her. And then the second part is, is from verses 51 to 55, and it's more corporate. The great things that God has done and will do for many. And the first part of Mary's song, uh, we said it already, is, is very personal. God has done something great for her, for this particular humble woman. In verse 40, 48, notice, he has looked on the humble state of his servant. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for her. And as a result of God's blessing, from now on, she says, all generations will call me blessed. But notice here that Mary is not the source of grace, as some claim. Rather, she is the receiver of grace. God has dealt graciously with her in her humble position. And she knows it, and it fills her with joy. And every generation recognises God's special blessing on Mary, and so we worship God, not Mary. But these are very personal verses, and Mary is thrilled to be the mother of the Messiah. However, Mary's joy is much greater than her personal circumstances. I mean, her song actually reveals that she is very aware that much more is going on here. Uh, Mary's personal circumstances are a pattern, if you like, for the way that God works in this world. His grace and favour to Mary actually express God's character more generally. Uh, so God is a saviour, notice, who is both merciful and mighty because that is his character. Mary describes God as her saviour, verse 47 who has mercifully looked on her humble estate, verse 48, and in his might has done great things for her, verse 49. 
And see, Mary's personal circumstances reveal that God is both merciful to save and he's mighty to save. But it's a salvation that is far greater than her personal circumstances. In verse 50, God's saving mercy is for all those who fear him in every generation. And so let's have a closer look at it in the second part of Mary's song. Now let me pick it up from verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And before we look a little more closely at the nature of God's salvation, I, I, I first want to ask, who is it for? Because Mary clearly knows that God isn't just her saviour. See what she says there in verses 54 and 55? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, Mary's God and saviour was acting not just for her, but for all Israel. He was fulfilling the promise of mercy that he had made 2,000 years before to Abraham. Right from the beginning, human beings have rebelled against God. And in our sinful pride, every gener generation have turned their backs on him. And as a result, we live in a broken world of wickedness and pride and injustice and hurt and pain. And worst of all, every person is destined to stand before their maker one day as guilty sinners. But 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, God made a promise. He made a promise to Israel through Abraham that he would send a saviour. That if they trusted in him, he would forgive their sins. He would bless them. And through them, God's blessing would extend to the whole world. See, Abraham and everyone after him looked forward to that day. For 2,000 years, God's people waited. Some may have thought that God had forgotten them, but Mary knows that that day has finally arrived in the birth of Jesus, even if it wasn't as they might have expected it to happen. And it's through Mary's boy child that God's mercy has come to those who fear him in every generation. It was for Mary, it was for Israel, and it's just as much for those who fear him today. In other words, God's salvation is for people like Mary, for people who will humbly trust in God. See, that's the point really of verses 51 to 54. Cast your eyes back over it because it actually doesn't get more emphatic than this. Look what he says. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich empty away. He has helped his servant Israel. Who has done all this? God has done it. But God's salvation is not merely for the Jews oppressed by Rome. Rather, it's for everyone who face God's judgment because of our sin. See, this is good news for the whole world who are enslaved by their sin. God is our saviour. That's his character. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves in this world. And it's actually perverse to think that we can. God's salvation is his to give 
and he chooses to give it to those who fear him. Who hum that is, those who humbly trust in his mercy and power. Now when you get in trouble in the surf and you raise your hand and are rescued by a lifesaver, it's actually quite perverse, isn't it, to think that you saved yourself by putting your hand in the air. Now just like the Jews under Roman oppression or under the crushing evil of the Nazis, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves from our own sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was imprisoned by Hitler during World War II, wrote to his fiancée from prison on one of the lessons that he had learned from life behind bars. This, this is what he wrote. He said, A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside, is not a bad picture of Advent. That is, it's not a bad picture of the arrival of Jesus Christ. Only God can save us. What we need is mercy. We need the truth that without God's mercy, we are lost and condemned. And the truth is, we don't deserve God's mercy. All we've contributed is our sin. And the fact is, you give mercy to failures, to people who cannot achieve. And if you accept the mercy of God, you know that you can't save yourself. And it's the same for all people. Our only hope is a saviour. And that's who God is. Without God's mercy, we're lost and condemned. But with God's mercy, he brings about a great reversal of fortunes. Now have a look in these few verses how God reverses things. Look, verse 52. Those of humble estate are exalted. Or in verse 53, the hungry are filled. But you see, that's only one side of the equation here because the other side of that reversal is that he opposes the proud. Verse 51, God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he brings down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent empty away. Now, do you ever think, of, think to yourself, well, I'm actually, I'm actually doing okay. I'm, I don't really need God. Life's okay the way it is. I'm comfortable with what I am and who I am. Or, or do you think I'm really not such a bad person? I don't do that much wrong. I'm pretty nice. There's, if there's a God, he'll be happy enough with me. I mean, remember that God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. I mean, just because God is great doesn't mean that he's partial to great people. And just because he's exalted doesn't mean he favours what people exalt. You know, the so-called great ones of this world have no advantage over anyone when it comes to their standing before God. God's not impressed by wealth or power or pride. In fact, why would he be? Those are the things that often become substitutes for God, not pointers to him. And there are great numbers of people who will stand before God condemned because their wealth or power or pride convinces them that they don't need God's mercy. It's so easy for the rich and powerful to think to themselves, what can God offer me? Why do I want anything? What could I possibly need? It's why the wealthy and the powerful religious elite in Jesus' day didn't accept Jesus. But the poor and the needy flocked to him. It's why it's hard to reach people with the gospel in affluent communities like our own. It's why wealthy Australia has pushed God away. When we're successful in this world, 
We find it hard to think about another world. We don't realise actually how fragile our success actually is. Our pride makes it uh, so hard to fear God and to seek his mercy. We don't think we need him. But God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he blesses the humble who look to him for mercy. See, when God saves, a great reversal takes place. And Mary understood that. And her confidence in God's promises mark her out as one of the great Old Testament believers. But more than that, she's actually one of the last Old Testament believers in the New Testament. She actually believed that in her womb, she carried the one who would bring about that great reversal that God had always promised. And she was right. Jesus actually has fulfilled that promise now. But not necessarily as you would expect him to. I mean, Jesus, remember, Lord of creation, humbled himself in obedience to his Father. He was hated. He was mistreated. He was wrongly accused. He was abused by proud and powerful men who mocked and beat and hung him naked to die on a wooden cross. You see, here is the greatest and the most unexpected reversal. Because while the Jews killed their own Messiah, God raised him from the dead. Though he was ridiculed and persecuted, God has seated him at his right hand in heaven. And though he was considered weak and unimpressive, God has given him all power and glory and authority to rule over all things. And here's the other unexpected thing. As an Old Testament believer, Mary and many like her may have been waiting for a physical reversal of their fortunes. And while that promise still remains... One day we will all enjoy the wealth and power and glory of God's eternal kingdom. But right now what God is looking for is a reversal in our hearts. God's salvation reverses our present situation. And we see it in the forgiveness of sins. We go from being dead in our sins to alive in Jesus Christ. We go from being God's enemies to being his friends. We see it in changed lives. We leave behind lives of sin and guilt and shame. And we live in the freedom and joy of Christ. We see it in the reversal of values. See, God is not the least bit impressed by wealth and power and pride, and nor will we be. Instead, we come to value the eternal riches and goodness of God. Not the ego-boosting accumulation of wealth and power and status that in the end is so fleeting. See, Mary's song actually teaches us so much about what true joy is, about lasting joy, about substantial joy. Her own experience is an example of the way God is, and it actually causes her to rejoice. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. I mean, Mary experiences the mercy and power of God, and it causes her to rejoice. And it's in her rejoicing... That God is magnified, and we want God to be magnified. Maybe we've forgotten what a great reversal God has brought about in us. Maybe we've forgotten his mercy toward us when we were his enemies. Maybe we find ourselves grumbling or criticising, being judgmental and petty over minor things. I mean, surely we must reflect on the grace and mercy and power of God our Saviour who has done great things for us. See, when we've experienced the mercy 
and the power of God in our own salvation, it's natural that we want him to be magnified, that we want him to be glorified. And the way that we magnify God is by rejoicing in him, by speaking to others of his goodness and love. We want people to know how great and good God is to those who will humble themselves before him. It's why joylessness is so out of place for the Christian. It makes our faith repulsive rather than attractive. It minimises God rather than magnifying his greatness. And God wants us to rejoice in him. But that doesn't mean kind of just putting on a happy face when we don't feel that happy or when things aren't going all that well. God simply wants us to rest in him, to be happy in his mercy, because he's our saviour too. So let's relax, let's rejoice, like Mary, in God, our saviour. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you have done great things for us. Great is your name. Father, we pray that our souls might magnify you, as we rejoice in you and as we share the good news that there is hope in Jesus to the world around us and to the people in our lives. Help us, Lord God, to look on the Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas, to rest in him and to rejoice in him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.